electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Money starts right now. I'm Melissa Lee. A monster round of earnings hitting the street. Apple, Amazon, Visa, United, all on the move in the after-hour session. Many of those conference calls are just getting underway. Our traders tonight, they're standing by to break down all the big headlines. With us for the hour, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Karen Feinerman. But we begin with the biggest one, Apple, well off its after-hour session highs, while Amazon is sharply lower. We've got full team coverage lined up for you. Deep Bosa's digging in on Amazon. Josh Lipton's all over Apple. Loop Ventures' Gene Munster's gearing up for both of the calls. We kick things off with Apple, which is now negative after a brief pop right after the release. Josh Lipton just spoke with Apple CEO Tim Cook. Josh, what's the latest? So, you know, Melissa, one question I had for, for Tim Cook is what he's seeing in China. Obviously, so important for Apple as a, a key link in that company's supply chain, but also as an important end market. I asked him what his iPhone demand looked like in China and whether you could extrapolate from that. Is China a leading indicator, I asked him, for possibly Europe and the U.S.? Cook telling CNBC there was a significant, very steep fall off in February, he said. That began to recover some in March, and we've seen further recovery in April. So it leaves us some room for optimism. It's hard to tell if that's a leading indicator. There are differences, Cook says. The U.S. has had a very bold stimulus program, and I think that will clearly help. And I'm optimistic about the pace of a recovery in the United States. I also did ask him, of course, about that work from home trend. So many more millions of people working, uh, learning and playing from home. How has that shifted demand for his products and services? Cook says it has. He tells us it's clearly helping the iPad and the Mac. And for that reason, we envision both of those to have improving year over year performances in this current quarter. If you look at TV Plus, Cook saying as an example, we've seen a significant uptick in the number of people that are viewing content as well as the engagement with content. And finally, I did ask him about that. That new iPhone, the SE, that low-cost model, um, you know, a powerful processor there, Melissa, and it starts at just $399. So I did ask Cook whether he was concerned. Um, could the popularity of the SE actually cannibalize those higher-end models, tank his margins? Cook telling us the iPhone SE placed the person who really wants an iPhone but wants to do so on a tighter budget as well. So it's very affordable and it's faster than the fastest Android phone. We never worry about cannibalization. Our view is that if someone is going to cannibalize, it better be us. And so it's not something we worry about. We couldn't be happier about the SE. And finally, Melissa, the company did not provide Q3 forecasts. We asked Cook why that lack of guidance. He said simply in the short term, there's too much uncertainty to really say what the six, next 60 days are going to look like. Back to you. All right, Josh, thanks. Basically, we've given up the gains that Apple made in the regular session at this point. Guy Adami, is there really a disappointment here in shares of Apple, or is this a sort of sell-the-news phenomenon? think the latter. Sell the news. You know, I don't think it's a disappointment. It's actually probably better than a lot of people thought. And the fact that now services uh, actually was much better than people thought. Now it's probably close to 25 percent of this quarter's revenue is pretty encouraging. You know, I'm sure there are things a lot of people love. I'm sure there are a lot of things the naysayers will not like. And the bottom line is, to your point, we've just given back what we got today. I think I find the stock in this environment with today's tape uh, somewhere in no man's land. You know, the Goldman Sachs downgrade still resonates in my head. But for every Goldman Sachs, 
you have a Morgan Stanley that upgrades the stock. So at current price levels, I think you're probably pretty much spot in the middle of a range. And now you have to play stock market and ask yourself, you know, did, did, are we starting to roll over? Or is this market move to the upside still intact? I don't know the answer to that, but I happen to think that um, we're probably due for a little bit of a pullback broader market. Dan, what's your take? Yeah, you know, Guy just mentioned that services was better than expected, about 17% growth year over year, and that's what it was um, in their prior quarter. You know, listen, that is decelerated pretty massively. That was a big part of the story. That helped the multiple last year in 2019 nearly double um, on a PE basis on the stock. And I think investors at some point last year made the decision that this thing just de- deserves to trade at a consumer staple multiple, something like a Coke or a Proctor. They're above 20 times. So I guess the question you have to ask yourself now, are iPhones going to continue to grow? Because that's really the only way that you grow services and the ecosystem and wearables around it by growing iPhone units. And they really haven't done that over the last few years, which brings you to that iPhone SE. You know, there was a disappointment on gross margins. But listen, this was a tough quarter and they did really well. To Guy's point, I think it is a bit of a sell the news. The question you have to ask yourself, does it deserve to trade 24 times this year, 20 times next year, which are record highs for this stock? in the last 10 years. And I would say, given the uncertainty, their ability to forecast the current quarter, I would say no. So I think it should settle in a little lower than here. I get that in terms of the concern about the valuation, uh, Karen. But in this market environment, should we perhaps not be comparing Apple to itself historically, but rather Mm -hmm. to the markets in this environment and whether it deserves a premium versus the broader markets today? Right. Well, it is getting a premium, that's for sure. If you look at the PE, it's getting a premium, but also obviously that, you know, fortress balance sheet, um, that deserves some part of the premium that goes to that. But I think that uh, what Guy said, I think was right uh, in terms of given the run that it's had, I think the, f- the short term future for Apple is more alpha, is more beta, meaning with the market than alpha, which would be uh, Apple, you know, sort of outperforming on its own. Given the run that it's had, I think, I mean, this was a really good quarter. I was very pleased. Um, There was a lot to like. I think the services were a lot to like. We've all talked a long time about how that that higher multiple should give them a higher blended multiple. But given that, I think the stock maybe was about, uh, I don't know, 220-ish on the lows. So it's come back so far. I actually, I'm long, but I, I wouldn't, I, I, you know, I wouldn't be adding to it right here unless you have a very strong view on the market and a very quick recovery in the United States. If I had to characterize so far, Tim, the sentiment towards this stock by your uh, three fellow traders, it would be meh when it comes to Apple because of the valuation at this point. Do you agree? Well, I can't say that I'm ready to go in and buy a lot of Apple today, but but I'll push back on a little bit on on what everybody said. I'll push back on Dan and say that I actually think you have been growing services revenue uh, on a, you know, the the delta on services revenue has been growing in this difficult iPad uh, shipment growth period. Uh, To Karen, I'd say that you actually had alpha in, 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 in Apple, at least relative to the market. So it wasn't just beta before you went into COVID-19. So Apple was outperforming the market on this sense that services revenue is, is, is doing well. And, and, and uh, you know, I forgot what Guy said, but, but I'll push back on him just for the sake of doing that. <laughs> now, I, I think you have a case here where the things that were driving this multiple, Guy talked about the multiple, the things that were driving the multiple, record services, 
Uh, and you know what else is driving the multiple? Their, their capital markets activity. So buyback activity, you've reloaded the gun. Uh, they're going to continue to pay this dividend. Apple has no one to apologize to in terms of how they've handled uh, their buyback program. So uh, for investors that want to be defensive in a market, uh, JP Morgan puts a 20 times multiple. Goldman puts a 16. That's your bid ask as far as I'm concerned. And I, I would lean towards the top end of that. All right, we'll keep track of Apple, of course, in the aftermarket. Meantime, let's move on to Amazon. It is sharply lower in the after hours off of its uh, earnings results, down about 5% right now. Deidre Bose has got the latest. Deidre. Hey, Melissa. So Amazon certainly performed in terms of revenue as the street was expecting. Demand is surging, but where it fell short, of course, is that profit. Costs are rising, too. And here it's worth repeating what Bezos was quoted as saying at the top of the press release. He said that under normal circumstances in this coming Q2, we'd expect to make some $4 billion or more in operating profit, but these are not normal circumstances. Instead, we expect to spend the entirety of that $4 billion, perhaps a little bit more, on COVID-related expenses, getting products to customers, and keeping employees safe. So, Melissa, given rising labor unrest, there is a big push on Amazon's side to show that they are taking care of its workers, and that, in turn, will be good for the company if it can get more capacity back online and fulfill orders more quickly. Also interesting in the results, I want to point out physical store sales. Uh, these have really been muddling along, seeing growth of 1% or perhaps minus 1% year over year. Grew 8% this past quarter. Whole Foods makes up the majority of that. So their grocery ambitions finally starting to take a little bit of hold. And I just got off the phone with CFO Brian Olsavsky. He sounded optimistic on this business. Uh, that call, The call kicks off at 5.30, but he also gave some more color on uh, the media call that I just got off of. He said that capacity constraints have been easing and they have actually hired the 175,000 workers already that they set out to hire. He declined to give numbers on total COVID cases at warehouses. Uh, so that was interesting because there's a lot of questions surrounding that, especially with another uh, strike scheduled for this week for tomorrow. The key takeaway, though, Melissa, Amazon is warning that it could lose money as demand, even as demand surges. But remember, it wasn't so long ago that Amazon was not turning a consistent profit. So you're seeing shares down about 5% in the after hours. It gained more than 4% today. It's still up about 30% year to date. Back to you. Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa, Guy Dami. I go to you first because uh, you've been pretty steadfast in your call to sell this into the report. I love that word steadfast. It's a, it's a fantastic word. Um, and Thank I you. use it all the time. It's one of my crutches. You're welcome. But, you know, one of the things we said, and if you look and if you go back and look, and one of the things we've been talking about is Amazon actually bottomed out a week or so before the broader market. And when things were going pear-shaped on March 23rd, Amazon was actually moving to the upside, and we talked about that quite a lot. What we've said is Amazon is going to continue to rally into earnings. It rallied 52, 5-2% from that low print to the high print, I think, today, actually. And I thought it would give back. I still think you're going to have an opportunity to buy it at 2170, and that's where you reload. This quarter, by the way, was pretty outstanding by just about any metric, including operating margins, which should have gotten crushed. And they still came in at 5.3%. So you got to tip your cap. But when Jeff Bezos, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, when he tells shareholders basically to take a street, uh, take a seat because it's going to be a, a wild ride, I, I'd listen to the man. You know, and I think you're going to get an opportunity. That's not negative about Amazon. It's just trying to trade the stock properly. I mean, expenses were up all over the board when it comes to labor costs, when it comes to COVID expenses. And the mix also really challenged margins, and yet they were able to deliver 
Karen, do you give Amazon credit for that? I mean, do, can you even see uh, a point where you could say maybe this company has got it and maybe the valuation you can look past? Yes, actually, maybe. I mean, I love that it's down, you know, after this extraordinary run. I do think that when they have had to sort of respond to the pandemic the way that they have had in such a short amount of time, I think that, to Guy's point, that they were as efficient as they were is kind of amazing. When they talk about hiring that many people, getting them on board, when they talk about <clears throat> trying to keep everyone safe that works for them, I know that's been the source of some you know, discontent, um, and then thinking about how did they just deploy that massive amount of new uh, orders, and they've been able to do it pretty successfully You've got to think that even if it slows down somewhat on the revenue line, that they will also be much more efficient operating in the future, having gotten a little bit of time to sort of, you know, get people on board, get them to work efficiently. I'm, I'm really impressed, and I think that they will come out of this so much stronger. And you think the idea that they were willing to give guidance for the coming quarter and that the revenue growth is in, I don't, I mean, it was a wide range, but somewhere in the 20s they could fall in. It's, that is extraordinary. And, you know, when you think about Whole Foods, what they've been able to do with that, I, I'm pretty impressed. And I think that they will come out much stronger on the other end. I mean, second quarter, calendar second quarter in terms of giving guidance, Dan, that should have been a free pass for every single company out there. And yet Amazon chose to give guidance. I mean, that's pretty telling. <clears throat> Yeah, and, and I applaud them in a way. I mean, it shows that they're actually bracketing what they think their business looks like, you know, from a base case to a best case to a worst case. So so good for them. You know, I think it's important when you think about Amazon. I think Guy is correct about the ability to reload. I mean, there's just unusually positive sentiment in the name. When you saw it break out just a few weeks ago and just go straight higher, you know, you, ha you say to yourself, okay, th this is this can't last like this. Mark Cuban, last week on our show, I think he said it's going up, up, up. Up. He didn't say it's going to come back a little bit. You know, stocks like this need to back and fill. Just make one point about 2019. This stock really did underperform for most of the year because of the spending that they were doing to get ready for, not ready for the pandemic, but their future literally lied with logistics. It lied with the ability to get people things in one day, that sort of thing. So ultimately, I mean, they're being rewarded for those investments. And I suspect if the stock does come in a little bit, then sometime in the future, that valuation will be rewarded again. Let's get more reaction to both Amazon and Apple's reports. Bring in Fast Money friend Gene Munster of Loop Ventures. Gene, great to have you with us. Don't know where you want to start. There's so much to dig into. Um, which was the report where you say the stock reaction was warranted? Amazon, I mean, great results. The fact that they made and maintained as the new uh, beat and raise, so positive on Amazon. Ultimately, is that uh, so that spend curve, I just want to put that into perspective, this $4 billion in spending is when they reported the September quarter, they talked about same-day spending of $900 million in that quarter. So this is very in line with what they historically have done on that spending side. So I understand that reaction. Uh, Amazon makes a ton of sense. This is trading at over 100 times uh, next year's numbers. That number is going to probably be 200 times after analysts make their adjustment to estimate. So not surprised. There is a difference between companies that are really changing the world and doing great things and great investments. And I want to draw a very clear line between Apple's results to me uh, makes no sense. I always, when numbers come out, make a prediction about where I think the stock should be trading. And on these numbers, I was thinking that it would be up five plus percent. Don't know where it's at at this minute, but 
ultimately, this is a rock-solid company. And I do uh, have, I am on a different page than the investors, uh, sorry, versus the traders. The conversation today was about Apple being uh, an expensive stock. Understand for Apple relative to its past, it has moved up in the past year, but this is still relatively inexpensive. And at the end of the day is that uh, Apple was the most at-risk large tech company coming into these earnings. Uh, they had flat revenue year over year, iPhone down 7%. Wearables, a number that they don't report, we can back into that quickly, it was up 24% year over year versus 44 last quarter. So it did decelerate, but still impressive what they're doing. And you think about the earnings power of this company is uh, it's just there's a light year gap between thinking about investing in Apple versus Amazon. What are the questions that you would have for each of these companies' management teams on the conference calls? So from uh, Amazon's perspective, this sit down because we got big plans uh, comment from Jeff Bezos. What is that really uh, related to? My guess is it's something delivery, but that's an area that they could fill in and I think Amazon continue to innovate. In terms of Apple, uh, Tim Cook at a uh, internal meeting a few weeks ago talked about some of the product roadmaps and some of the things that they're uh, working on next year. I think you need to basically take 2020 and really uh, uh, discount it almost entirely and start looking to 2021, which companies are gonna be best positioned. And the question related to Apple is, how do you see your product trajectory? Tim Cook teased a few weeks ago with that internal meeting that they're gonna have some iconic product that comes out of this. Maybe it's the 5G phone, maybe it's something else, but that would be my question. Dan, you got a question? Yeah. Hey, Gene. So, you know, you push back on the traders uh, in air quotes here. Um, but, you know, listen, there's this, this is a company that did not grow earnings or sales last year. It's not going to grow earnings or sales this year. It didn't grow iPhone units. So where should this trade based on if you're saying look past 2020 and look at 2021? What, what, what is the valuation and where do you expect earnings to be next year? So what, what I consider fair value would be a multiple consistent with some of the other large cap names excluding Amazon and Netflix, because those are some of the higher ones. So if you look at Google and Facebook, in particular Microsoft, they tend to trade between 25 and 30 times. And uh, yes, they do uh, have higher growth at times, but I do believe that Apple, if you think about where they're going, think about everything around 5G, wearables, health and wellness, uh, streaming services, all of these I think will ultimately create an earnings growth with the buyback that was impressive what they did with the buyback today. I think this should grow at grow earnings at 10 to 15%, very similar to some of these other large cap names. I, I'm, I've been a tech investor my entire life. I understand that cash is usually not that valued by many te other tech investors, but the power that this company has to generate cash on a consistent basis, not in this period, but normally on a consistent basis, I think should drive at a minimum a consistent multiple with, with Facebook and Google and Microsoft, mm -hmm. and uh, that would be kind of 25 to 30 times. Gene, thank you. Gene Munster of Loop Ventures. Tim, I go to you. In the past two days, we've had about 20% of the S&P 500 report in the form of tech earnings. So <clears throat> was this the ultimate sell the markets event because we had such a bulk of the markets report? We, we rallied so 
Yeah, we rallied so hard into it. Um, I, I think we've seen this, first of all, at other earnings periods that haven't necessarily been COVID, um, that we, we really wanted the bottom up. We were so embroiled in a trade war and all this other macro. We wanted the bottom up numbers. These companies have largely given you uh, a very decent outlook. Obviously, the last two days, the fact that, uh, you know, the first three weeks of April was largely, you know, flat for Facebook and Google was uh, more or less crawling or stabilizing. And so I, I just think we have a case here where the, the, the valuation dynamic is, is very tough to call. We've been saying that since the start of, of the earnings call. But, you know, Gene pointed out the drivers in Apple. Those are very important. They're not changing. Um, in terms of Amazon, um, there are companies like Amazon. Those numbers were fantastic numbers. Amazon's ahead of the class. But there's a lot of companies that pulled forward sales or uh, were rewarded by the market because of their perceived or actual positioning uh, as a taker uh, of, of market share coming out of this. I think you have to be really careful. Look at what's happened to Walmart, mm -hmm. uh, which has been another big market play over this period. Um, I think there are going to be reassessments of what's performed and what's not. All right. Up next, you know what's up next? More earnings. They keep rolling in. Two big reads on the consumer, both Visa and United Airlines, out with res results. Uh, what these companies are saying about the future and later, Bank of America's Savita Supermanian says this group of stocks is an all-time buy. She will join us when Fast Money returns. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. The earnings keep rolling in. Visa and United both on the move in the after hours. Our team of reporters are standing by to break down all the big headlines. Phil Bowes digging in on United. But we kick things off with Kate Rooney and more on Visa's quarter. Kate. Hey, Melissa. Good to see you. Visa topping expectations with quarterly earnings and revenue. But the company's seen a slowdown and the effects of COVID-19 on consumer spending. Visa CEO Al Kelly kicking off the call just now saying that a year that looked quite promising after a solid first quarter has been substantially disrupted by COVID-19. Because of uncertainty in the global economy, Visa saying it will not give full year guidance. One area to watch here, cross-border payments. This is a higher margin one for Visa and makes up about a third of their revenue. That fell 2% in the quarter as international travel is mostly on hold. Overall payments growth came up short of expectations as well. Late March volume specifically saw a sharp declines uh, as spending at restaurants and travel saw a major slowdown. Another interesting nugget, guys, Al Kelly saying Visa saw a more than 40% rise in consumers using tap to pay thanks to caution around spreading the virus. This and other secular trends like the rise in e-commerce should help Visa, but analysts still want to know throughout the rest of this analyst call if the worst is over when it comes to the spending slowdown. 
Back to you guys. All right, Kate. Thanks, Kate Rooney on Visa. I'm interesting, Karen, because tap to pay, the driver of that is exactly what is causing that drag on their all-important cross-border business. Mm-hmm. No travel, no airlines, no hotels. And that's a major problem for not just Visa, but also for a lot of these cards that really built a business and brand. They built brands around the idea of points for travel. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's obviously the cross-border and travel obviously go hand-in-hand. Hand. And as you as pointed out, that's very, um, that's very uh, high margin of business for them. It's, I mean, MasterCard, I think, reported almost exactly the same thing. It was notable to me how I didn't see the cadence of the quarter for Visa, but it's probably very similar to what MasterCard did, which was terrible, terrible the end of March, terrible through the beginning of April, and actually only a little bit better. We've seen other businesses, like Facebook, for example, talk about some stabilization, um, even Apple talking about that. We didn't, I didn't, I thought that MasterCard and probably Visa would have bounced back more than they did. And so the stocks, I mean, I think Visa went from 220 to 140. It's probably halfway back. Guy, that sounds like a perfect half, you know, retracement. Uh, they're not cheap here at 30 plus times earnings. So, I'm long MasterCard, but I, it's similar to Apple. I wouldn't be buying more right here. All right. Let's turn out to United. That is moving higher after reporting. Phil LeBeau's got the numbers. Phil. Hey, Melissa, we've said this time and again about the airlines. We're going to talk about Q1 just to let everybody know the results were out there. And it was a smaller than expected loss of $2.57 a share. Revenue a little light of expectations coming in at $7.98 billion. But it's really the cash and liquidity. That's what everyone is focused on. So for United... Through yesterday, and we're telling you through yesterday because this is changing almost every couple of days, it has $9.6 billion in cash on hand. That's up from $7.2 billion at the end of Q1. Daily cash burn, consider this. In March, when COVID-19 hit, they were going through about $100 million a day. They now believe that by the end of Q2, the average will be 40 to $45 million a day. Compare that also with American reporting earnings earlier this morning. Uh, it's also targeting a much lower cash burn rate in the second quarter. It ended the first quarter with $6.8 billion in cash on hand. Plans to end the second quarter with $11 billion in cash on hand. Time and again, we've said they want to have as much cash as possible to make it through Q2, Q3, and then let's see what happens in Q4. One other note, Melissa. Delta joining JetBlue tonight in requiring passengers to wear face masks. So passengers and crews on all Delta flights will have face masks now. All right, Phil, thank you, Phil LeBeau. Guy Dami, I'll I'll go to you uh, on this trade and whether or not you can actually think about getting into airlines, either physically or via the stock. (laughs) Yeah, so listen, if you think magically, and I say that, that, you know, somehow in the next six to nine months, we're going to be going back to where we were four months ago, then you buy the airlines with both hands. I, I just don't see how that's possible. I think the airline industry, like many, are fundamentally changed and will be fundamentally changed. And that's going to have a tremendous impact on their ability to make money. Now, just the question is, have the stocks discounted that? I don't think they've had. United, for example, rallied from basically, I think, $20 to where it is now, 31 or so. It's a pretty, obviously, percentage-wise, significant move. You know, I think you got to wait and see what the world looks like. And if you miss the move to the upside, which I probably will, then you just say, I'm sorry. But and I'm trying to be pragmatic. I think you just sort of you still got to wait on these airlines to see what the world looks like in a few months. I mean, the ripple effect, if you if you want to sort of play that game on, on if you believe that the airline industry and how we use airlines will fundamentally change and not revert back to 
normal for at least six to nine months. I mean, the ripple effects on all sorts of other businesses like a visa, like any of these affinity cards out there that consumers are buying for reward points, um, like an Expedia, Dan. I mean, it, it goes on and on. Yeah, I mean, Mel, this is where I feel like the airlines are actually telling the right story, at least in the stock market, the lack of bounce. I know Guy just mentioned United went from 20 to 30, but it's still down from 85 just a few months ago. Listen, I fly United usually once or twice a month for business. I have no plans to get on a commercial airplane for the rest of this year, for business or for pleasure. That's not changing. There is no vaccine coming. Um, there's not you know, going to be the level of testing or the confidence in the antibody testing. So I think that people need to get comfortable with the fact that whole trickle effect that you just mentioned. I use Expedia. I use uh, Visa. There's cross-border payments. None of it's going to happen that I did last year is going to happen for the balance of this year. So um, you know, these companies are in it for the long haul here, and those capital raises are going to keep on coming. If the financial crisis is any indication of how frequently banks had to raise capital, I think a lot of companies like in the airline industry are going to continue to have to raise capital and dilute their equity holders. Tim, quickly, I mean, you do have the backstop of the U.S. government. Well, you do. But I, I think the point of normalcy is a very debatable one. I, I do think there will be people that come forth and they, the airport system and getting on an airplane will have a different set of rules and costs. But we're going to figure this out, and, and I think I will be flying before the end of the year. All right. Up next, Fast Track, where we are tracking the data to get you the trade coming up, the hidden nugget in the jobless claims report that tells us about where the economy might really be heading. Plus, Bank of America's Savita Subramanian is with us, the one part of the market she is calling an all-time buy. And we are all over Amazon, the after hours. The company's earnings call is just getting started. We're listening in. We'll bring you all the big headlines. Stay with us. Fast is back in two. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money Time for Fast Track, where we track the data to get you the trade. And there's a big hidden nugget in that jobless claims reports from this morning. While there was a drop in the total number of claims filed, we are seeing a shift in the type of worker filing for unemployment. According to a Washington Post analysis, in the first few weeks since the shutdown, we saw big upticks in filings from workers in jobs like food service, hairdressers, and construction, no surprise. But more recently, the biggest jumps were in white-collar jobs, management, finance, administration, groups that many might have thought would be more immune to the downturn. So, Dan, the implications is that perhaps we haven't seen the worst in terms of the pullback in spending or the worst in terms of the impact on the economy. 
Yeah, I think that's really important. I mean, we're just a couple months into this crisis, and I think if you go back and think of the financial crisis, that it took a year, year and a half to see un- the unemployment rate really top out mm-hmm. at some point in early 2009, near 10 percent. So we've front end and loaded unemployment of all those sectors that have been adversely affected. But you're going to see this white collar stuff. A lot of corporate America cannot, the optics are really bad for them to start firing during a health crisis. That's coming this summer and this fall. So I think you're going to see unemployment come way down once we unlock the economy. But then you're going to see it stay up at high single digits, I suspect. I'm not an economist for a while. And that's the negative impact that you're going to see on consumer spending, I suspect, the back half of this year. That's interesting. The optics of firing people guy and the notion that once we're past the pandemic that we could actually have a lot more layoffs and and firings etc i mean you pair that with the consumer spending number that we got this morning which is the biggest drop since 1959 and you got to think perhaps we're in for a lot more pain when it comes to the pullback in spending yeah, and look, first of all, I give Dan a lot of credit because that's not an easy thing to say what he just said, but it's an honest thing and it's his opinion. And I'll sort of echo it. I think nobody would be willing to say this, and I understand why, but quite frankly, I'm sure there are a lot of companies out there Guy, sorry that are to looking interrupt. over the We've landscape. we got breaking news out of the White House. we got to get to Kayla Tausche for the latest. Kayla. Melissa, President Trump is answering questions from reporters right now. He was asked about the Washington Post report earlier today about wanting to retaliate against China for the coronavirus. President Trump asked if he would actually not pay the debt that is currently held by China, approximately a trillion dollars. President Trump called it a great idea, but said he didn't want to play that game because of what it would do to the U.S. dollar and what he said was the sanctity of the U.S. dollar. He said that he could retaliate against China in the order of a trillion dollars just by putting on tariffs, and he said we could do that in a forthright manner. Melissa, we should also note he said now is not the right time to be penalizing China, but they are seeking answers about the origins of the virus, and he is prepared to take action when it's right to do so. Melissa? Uh, Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche in Washington. This is stunning given the comments earlier today from economic advisor Larry Kudlow, who said, quote, this is absolutely and unequivocally true, untrue. The full faith and credit of the U.S. debt obligations is sacrosanct. And so is our commitments to maintaining the U.S. currency as the world's reserve currency. Um, But again, within the realm of possibility, according to the president himself, that there could be retaliation for the virus um, against China. Guy Dami, you flagged this when that Washington Post report came across this uh, afternoon as potentially bigger than what we had gone through with the trade war when it comes to U.S.-China relations. I absolutely. And again, I'm not trying to be melodramatic here. I'm just trying to sort of keep it real. I thought that was extraordinarily significant, the fact that they're talking about reparations, uh, uh, you know, a trillion dollars. I mean, if we're going to go down this uh, rabbit hole again, correctly or incorrectly, I'm not a politician, but that is no, there is no way that is market positive, especially in the environment that we find ourselves in. And the fact that, you know, I guess, you know, the president's comments are somewhat uh, contradicting Mr. Kudlow's comments, that comes as a, no surprise, quite frankly, because if you pay attention, that happens almost on a weekly basis. Very true. Uh, for more on the impact on the markets, uh, let's bring in Savita Subramanian, the U.S. Head of Equity and Quantitative Strategy at Bank of America. Uh, Savita, great to speak with you, especially as we do Likewise. have this breaking news. Um, could this be sort of the, the, the black cloud over the market? Yeah, no, I think that, you know, I, I guess I would agree with Guy. This isn't particularly um, 
surprising. It's, uh, it's really more of what we've seen in terms of just a shift from a global economies to more localized economies. And I think that this is, you know, the timing is we're heading into election, uh, into campaign season. Um, I think that this is just another driver for companies, multinational companies, shifting supply chain risk, diversifying supply chain risk for bringing it back to the U.S. I actually, I actually think this could be shorter-term positive for the U.S. economy because if you think about it, um, just bringing bringing manufacturing capabilities back to the U.S., um, you know, kind of shifting to more of a local economy could actually be good for U.S. economic growth. It could, it could be good for smaller companies. Um, we could see sort of a, you know, a little bit of a pickup in the in manufacturing in the U.S., which has been a sore spot throughout this bull market, um, the the 10-year bull market that we had. So I think some of this could actually benefit um, the U.S. economy. But I think it's kind of more of what we saw even pre-COVID, and it's basically been hastened by uh, by the pandemic, which is the idea that that um, you know U.S. companies are are being incented to uh, to essentially onshore and think more locally rather than globally. Uh, but it is an interesting development and certainly one that that uh, merits further uh, exploration. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been teasing you, uh, Savita, in terms of you know, what your headline could be in this segment. And, and we've been saying that you have one sector that's an all-time buy, and it does seem to, to play into um, sort of this idea that, that we are going to have a recovery. So what is that, what is that sector, and do you see a, a sharp recovery in the, in the U.S. economy from, from the yeah, pandemic? So, so the sector, the punchline is banks. And, and as you know, I've come on this show and talked about banks in the past. I think what's really interesting about financials right now is if you look at China. So China has, you know, come back online. We've seen um, activity uh, start to normalize in China. They're, they're, you know, maybe a month or two ahead of us in terms of um, of the outbreaks and the and the quelling of the outbreaks. And what's interesting is that in China, the sectors that have come back to full capacity of, you know, what they were running at in in April of last year are financial companies, banks, we're seeing this with um, with other manufacturing segments, where we're not seeing it, and this is what you were talking to before the breaking news, where, where you're not seeing that immediate recovery is in the consumer-oriented areas of the economy. So when I look at financials, I think, okay, great, this is a sector that's probably going to recover faster than others in an upturn. It's also priced um, relatively conservatively. It still looks relatively cheap versus other areas of the market. Um, and then when you think about quality, it's got quality, it's got income potential. And then the kicker, and the reason I'm bringing it up on fast money from a trading perspective, is that it is deeply underweight by investors. So it's right now carrying about a 10% underweight in the average mutual fund. Then you compare this to, you know, bank stocks, which are carrying almost a two, two times overweight. So I think there's a lot of opportunity here to... Um, to pick up cheap financial companies um, that could benefit the most from a from a recovery or benefit the earliest at the very least. All right, Savita, always great to speak with you. Thanks for your time. Savita Supermanian of Bank of America. Tim, what would you make of uh, Savita's thoughts? 
Always interesting thoughts from Savita. And, and you know, it's funny because when Dan mentioned that the airlines in the last block are, are kind of representative of maybe really either where the market is or they're doing a nice job of, of kind of bringing in temperance, I would argue also that the banks have done that. And maybe the banks have been the most mispriced relative to the S&P. And this is what I hear Savita saying. Um, think about the drivers also for banks. Not only do you have uh, these banks trading at 30 uh, percent price to tangible book discounts to where they were, but, but you have these earnings reserves that have been put aside. Sorry, these, these loan provisions that have been put aside. And, and you have, I think, a major tailwind. We've seen that in the past. Now, I don't presume that there won't be significant loan uh, and credit issues. But for the most part, uh, these banks have already been extremely conservative in how they have assessed that. Uh, and so I, I do think that the banks are going to be uh, the most cyclically exposed. And they are the ones that at this point in the market with the S&P, uh, you know, 2850 to 2900, um, this is a case where the banks have not kept pace with this rally. Karen, just quickly in terms of the banks, your top pick right now. Uh, well, I have the most money in J.P. Morgan mm -hmm. okay. and second Bank America. Coming up, a burger battle. McDonald's shaking off a massive drop in sales. But where's the stock going from here? Plus, we're getting ready for Shake Shack earnings next week. Why options traders are betting that Shack could rally on the results. Stay with us. Welcome back to Fast Money. McDonald's falling today after reporting a 3% decline in same-store sales last quarter and a 22% decline in March alone. We heard from the McDonald's CEO earlier today on CNBC. He warned that things are likely going to get even worse in Q2. But the stock finished the day well off the low. So, Tim, do you still like the golden arches here? I like the golden arches, but I, I think this fits the category of, of, of despite, you know, we talked about those sectors where white collar was starting to feed in in our last block. But I, I, I just think that the pain that, that is existing in this demographic and, and uh, essentially the core buyer, the McDonald's, that's been part of the outperformance, uh, the wage creation, the things that were really inspiring the McDonald's higher ticket sizes and the digital sales are things that are under pressure here. Uh, I'm long the stock. Um, and I thought the stock traded very well today, given this somewhat sober outlook and the fall in same-store sales. But uh, I'm not encouraged that suddenly demand has to come roaring back. Guy? You know, I love a good cheeseburger at McDonald's. I mean, I jones those every once in a while. I'd say a few times a year, I'm absolutely More getting like five cheeseburgers and a large no? fry. As opposed to like a regular single cheeseburger? I'll, I'll add the quarter pounder just, yeah. you know, just for S&Gs, as they say. But what I'll say, if you go back... <laughs> The all-time high in this stock was, I think, last summer, 221. You have to figure out where, I think, to take profits. And we cratered down to 193 by the fall. I think if the stock were to trade up to 193, you take profits and you look to fight another day. That's how I would trade it here. I'm glad you refrained because this is a family show. So S&G's is a little, I mean, it's pushing the envelope, but at least it's clean still. The next burger joint up to bat is Shake Shack. The company's reporting after the bell Monday. Options traders are betting the stock. Could be in for a sizzling rally when the results cross the wire. Mike Coe's got the options action. Hey, Mike. Hi, Melissa. Shake Shack is a name that typically moves quite a lot on earnings. In fact, over the last eight quarters, this is a stock that's moved double digits, and the options market is expecting similar moves when they report next week. Right now, the options market's implying a move of about 12.5% higher or lower by the end of next week. Now, people who are looking at the options today might have noted that there was a lot of puts trading, but actually I would point out that some of that was actually just adjusting already open positions and where we saw most of the opening activity was actually the regular way, May 56 calls, over 1,400 of those ended up trading by the end of the day. Those were trading for just under $4, and buyers of those calls 
or obviously betting that the stock's going to rally through that strike by the four bucks they paid. That would put Shake Shack above $60 by May expiration, which is going to be two weeks from tomorrow. So obviously, I think the stock is still well off of its highs, but it has bounced substantially off its lows. Those who are speculating that it might make a move are actually getting options at a reasonably fair price if you compare it to how much this thing has moved historically. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. Mike Coe, for more Options Action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, shares of Amazon are still lower on the back of the results, down about 5%. The company's conference call is now underway. We are listening in. We'll bring you all the big highlights. Stay with us. If somebody wants to stay in their house, that's, that's great. They should be allowed to stay in their house and they should not be compelled to leave. But to say that they cannot leave their house um, and they will be arrested if they do, this is fascist. This is not democratic. This is not fr freedom. Give people back their goddamn freedom. That was Tesla CEO Elon Musk in the company's conference call last night. And, and this is one of the tragedies of not having that conference call go on during the show. Guys. <laughs> we, we're talking about Tesla earnings and we don't get to hear this stuff until way afterwards. Um, but what do you make of it? And, and do you think that we care any more about Elon Musk's sort of off the cuff comments uh, when the stock is, is doing so well? Yeah, so I'll answer that part first. I think the market's sort of become desensitized to a lot of things that he says. You know, a year and a half, two years ago, I think that's market moving. I think people have learned to deal with him and understand what he's saying. I mean, listen, he's absolutely entitled to his opinion. I didn't, maybe I'd been sleeping under a rock. I didn't realize people were getting arrested for leaving their homes. But there comes a time every once in a while where you got to put the greater good ahead of your own personal interests. And I happen to think that's where we are now. So if by me staying home is going to save somebody else's life, I'll absolutely stay home. With that said, that's my opinion, and he's entitled to his. And, you know, I'm sure at some point we'll share a scotch and we'll talk it over. Until then, you know, I, I don't think you trade the stock now on the back of Elon Musk's comments or tweets. You and Elon are going to be sharing a scotch. Maybe. <laughs> I'd like to see that. Uh, Karen, you know, if you're sitting on that board, would you just be smacking your forehead when he makes that comment? Yes, but, I mean, how many times have you smacked your forehead, right, before you realize, oh, I'm the idiot for being surprised every time this happens? <laughs> and, you know, someone like Larry Ellison, he's, you know, he's very comfortable with that kind of behavior, something somebody very outspoken. And look where the stock is, right? I mean, you could argue, but that's a different argument. It was an interesting uh, back and forth with David Einhorn, but... Um, you just got to get used to this. We talked the other day about his self-insuring the board. That was kind of bizarre also. Yeah, that happened a couple of days ago. Um, mm -hmm. Dan, what do you make of the stock move? And can you get on board? Listen, I, I, I'm perplexed by it. And, um, you know, listen, he's got disciples. I mean, they don't care what he says. They get emboldened by that sort of commentary. The stock, you know, makes no sense to me up here when you see just the value of GM and Ford just absolutely cratering. So to me, you know, I've been wrong on this for hundreds of points here. I'm not going to begin to, to change my tune. But, um, you know, I think the whole thing is a, a bit of a farce in, in one of the dumbest markets I've ever seen. So how's that? <laughs> That's Dan. That's what it is. Coming up, another check in the big tech results. Some big moves lower in the after hours. We will be right back.
couple of biotech stocks to watch in the after-hour session. Amgen coming in with a beat on the top and the bottom lines. It is also reaffirming its 2020 guidance. And take a look at shares of Gilead, of course, in the news uh, for its antiviral treatment, potential treatment for coronavirus. Uh, and that stock is down by 1.4 percent. Also a beat on the top and the bottom lines. But they did say that they feel some impact from COVID on their HIV as well as uh, hepatitis franchises. Uh, Guy Dami for IBB or either of these stocks, where would you go? Love Amgen. Uh, what, what concerns me is if you look, that 245 level was a top back in, I think, December of 2019. And then obviously recently we traded up there. So it concerns me that we're sort of stalling here. Uh, I'd rather buy it on a breakout above 245 if you're not in it. And Gilead's never been an earnings story to me. Above 78 and a half, that's sort of been a pivot level. You stay long GILD. I mean, Tim Seymour, there are a lot of comparisons saying, you know, take a look at Roach back during um, the, uh, I, think, I think it was SAR, no, for Tamiflu, it was $3 billion in the first year that it was released, and then it was only $600 million plus in the years afterwards. So they look yeah. at this potential treatment and say, you know, this not, might not be uh, the big moneymaker for Gilead. And at the same time, we're seeing potential declines in the HIV and hepatitis franchises, which are its core franchises. And the, these, this has been what's had, look, HIV headwinds uh, and HCV diminishing returns. Um, those pipelines are, are, are not growing. They're falling. Um, and they even said, uh, Gilead today, that Remdesivir is, is uh, uh, they're going to give it at, at cost. They're going to be very generous, this and that. They don't know when they're going to get repaid for it. So uh, the, the, the surge here uh, for a company that's been so important to the market um, is not necessarily intrinsic value you should be putting on the stock right now. I agree. But you know what goes away with the coronavirus pandemic, Dan? Regulatory headwinds. Who's going to, who's going to say to these guys, hey, um, you're pricing too much when they're the ones coming up with the tests, with the vaccines, with the treatments? Yeah, I think there's some optics to that too, Mel, but I would say from the regulatory front, there's going to be some good opportunities for M&A, and that's where Gilead could probably flex their balance sheet a little bit. So I'm kind of with Guy here. I don't think you'd be a seller of Gilead, and you'd probably buy it in the mid to low 70s if it gets back there anytime soon. By the way, the Gilead CEO, Daniel O'Day, will be on Squawk Box tomorrow morning, 7.45 a.m. Eastern time, so you won't want to miss that. Let's get to the final trades. Go around the horn. Guy Dami, kick it off. You mentioned on and on earlier. That's my favorite Stephen Bishop song. I encourage you. And I'm sorry about the flack you took for Dr. J as opposed to Allen Iverson. With that said, I thought the quarter and the guidance of Pfizer was very good. PFE. I defend my choice. Tim Seymour. Stephen Bishop, I think, with a cameo in Animal House, by the way. Um, and, and you don't need uh, IBB and biotech. How about go with Big Cap Pharma? Merck trading at a major discount to peers. Much more consistent return profile. Karen Feinerman. Yeah, United Rentals reported today. I thought the quarter was good. Obviously, it's difficult to see how the next few quarters will go. But what they do have is levers to pull in terms of cash flow and decreasing CapEx. I thought they did a great job. And the holy grail for them Mm -hmm. would be an infrastructure bill, which maybe that happens. Dan Nathan. Yeah, Twitter down today on earnings. I think you reload near 25. It gets there soon. Thanks for watching Fast. Mad Money starts right now. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. 
While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.